The following presentation is from North Pine Baptist Church. We trust that it will help you learn more about God and His message for the world. For more information and to connect with us, visit npbc.org.au. Just a reminder, I know Mike's already said this, but Christopher uh, Creedy will be speaking tomorrow night, 7.30 here, on the topic of Rediscovering Church Ecclesiology for a Post-COVID Congregation. That's us, folks. This is super relevant, really important stuff. I want to thank Chris in advance for the amount of work that he has done in thinking this through and putting this talk together. So I very warmly invite you to turn up tomorrow, 7.30. For those who haven't been to our third Monday talks before, uh, they begin at 7.30, finish at 8.30. That's it. Then we go home. Uh, so it's only one hour. There's no sort of carry-on afterwards, and the speakers are allowed just to keep on going because they're particularly excited about what we're talking about and all that sort of stuff. One hour, the end, go home. But the topic itself is super important. Really, really interesting. I'm, I'm personally really looking forward to it. So um, if you are too, and even if you're not, by the time we finish, you will have realized you should have done. So come along, 7.30 tomorrow night, here in the auditorium. And just uh, a little update on uh, missions again, um, just so people are aware of uh, how the missions committee spends your money. And we thank you for the many donations that come in week by week, month by month, over and above the budget of the mayor. But just in the last week, um, the Mrs. Committee has authorised a donation of $2,500 to the Baptist World Aid Appeal for Turkey and Syria. Uh, and also, we have allocated um, $800 to, uh, to help pay for the ingredients used to make pancakes for tablets and fundraisers. So that covers the cost of those ingredients for the year, which means that uh, the money that's raised through that fundraiser uh, is all part of the fundraising and not expenses don't have to come out of the money raised. So uh, we've allocated those to just in the last week. Just be aware that um, as a missions committee, we're always um, on the alert looking for those kinds of things that we're confident people here will be pleased to give to. So thank you for trusting us with that. And um, we continue to do that throughout the course of the year. And also, as we get to May Mission Month, we'll get more and more stuff on that as time goes on. I have to keep remembering that the, um, the uh, projector at the other end of the room is not working, but it's disappeared altogether. And so, uh, so this morning, um, I'm going to kind of invite you to think of perhaps the last time you were truly awestruck by the wonder of Jesus Christ. Who he is, what he's done, what he continues to do. And I suggest that as a Christian, it's, it's difficult to read through the opening paragraph of the 
experiencing a sense of awe, a sense of wonder. When these opening words were reminded of the magnificence of Christ, we're reminded that He is extraordinary. I remember a time in my own life, it's quite a few years ago now, when I stopped doing dry cuts. And I found it really, this is, this is weird, I know, but I found it difficult to physically open the Bible. It's not in my heart, it's like it was a, it's a birth or something. And then, I'll never do this, by the way. I said, Lord, cut. So I just opened the Bible at random. Came to this passage. And what? God spoke to me. Fresh. And I went through it. Tears and joy and repentance mounted. Let's read this passage this morning together. So from Hebrews chapter 1. Long ago, many times and many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. Whom he appointed the heir of all things, and through him he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Over the next fortnight, so we can see again next week. So, don't take this and feel free to get this video off and come home. Um, but, two things. So, first of all, this week, I'm going to concentrate on two words God spoke. God spoke. For those two words, we're going to turn on the title slide. God spoke. And we think about that topic, I'm going to actually narrow it even further. Because when it's referred to in this passage by the prophets, the prophets is actually the whole of the Old Testament. So I'm going to direct my attention to one element of the ways in which God spoke, and there are many ways in which God speaks. I'm going to direct my attention to one. Let's say that a little bit. And then next week, the top of the sermon is. Jesus is better. Jesus is better. So he's better than all that there was in the Old Testament. Why? Because he takes it. Why? Because he fulfills the longings of our heart. Jesus is better. So this week, God spoke, very narrow focus. Next week, Jesus is better. So in the course of those two weeks, I'd like to receive further invitation. I'd like to invite you over the next couple of Sundays then to be overwhelmed by the magnificence of Jesus as you delve into this majestic passage. Perhaps your Christian life has become a bit dry, a bit ho-hum. Maybe spend a little bit of time reflecting on this passage to help revitalize your relationship with Jesus. Maybe it will remind you what it is that originally attracted you to Him in the first place. Maybe the the burdens and the pressures and the vicissitudes of life so occupy your time, your emotional energy, that you have unintentionally pushed Jesus to the margins. But perhaps, most of Hebrews 1 
for the tool that he hopes to restore him to the center. Perhaps we can rediscover that he is in fact the only one strong enough and loving enough to meet our deepest needs. Provide hope and comfort to their peace and love. So our plan is to explore the first couple of um, verses. Let's read this verses from the three in this um, four verse passage. And so I'm going to concentrate this morning on just two words. God spoke, and I'll expand upon that next week. Which reads as well as verses two and three. I'd also like to just um, give you, uh, I guess, a bit of a brief background stuff. This is kind of a, the technical bit. So bear with me; it won't take very long. There's lots of detail I could go into this. I'll just leave that out. So, who wrote Hebrews? It's a fascinating book. It's probably the most tightly argued book in the New Testament, probably more so than in Romans. It uses the most sophisticated Greek of any book in the New Testament, even more sophisticated than that of Luke. It incorporates some of the stylistic features of a letter, but also employs the textual features of a sermon. The sort of sermon you expect to hear in a synagogue. It's kind of a hybrid thing a letter and a homily or sermon. But you don't know who wrote it. There's no authorship declared in the letter itself, and there's lots of suggestions going around. You know, everyone from Paul to Barnabas to Silas to Apollos, even Priscilla and Apollos. Uh, I have a view. Not sure if it's right. I've got a favor of Apollos. You can use this word another time, but there's no another bit of favor Silas, but we don't know. And it's possibly reasonable to actually agree with you with this. Um, Oregon of Alexandria, which in one of the five that two fifty four for those each of such things, is said by Eusebius in his history of the church, um, regarding the authorship of this particular book, he says, But as to who wrote the epistle, Hebrews, God knows the truth of the matter. Because no one does. No one else does. No one does. God knows that. There's a few things you do know about the author. Now, in, uh, in, in chapter 2, verse 3, it says of himself, It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. It seems like he's that first generation of, of Christians. Not the original apostles, but that the next one, and he heard the message directly from the apostles. So it seems like in that sort of, let me say, that the second generation, first generation being the apostles and those who heard Jesus directly, and then the second generation those who heard from them. Um, it seems like he was a Hellenistic Jew, that is, a Jew who spoke Greek. Okay. Came from a Jewish community originally. He probably had Greek as his first language. He knew the, uh, the Old Testament inside and out, as he was told by reading the book. He quotes from the Old Testament more than any other uh, book in the, uh, in the whole of the New Testament. Um, and he used the Septuagint, that is, a Greek translation of the Old Testament in all of his uh, quotes. So, Greek scholar. Highly intelligent and Jewish in background. He was also a pastor who knew his readers and he was deeply concerned for them. But at the end of Hebrews 13, uh, he said he wanted to visit them again. So he knew them well. He called them brothers. He wanted Timothy as a brother. So his greatest concern, it seems, that there, is that there seemed to be in that church clear indications that their faith was wavering. And he was worried 
But then my guess is if Jesus encourages their former Jewish practices and beliefs, then they might become technically apostate. Really well. Greg Osborne, in his commentary, sums it up this way: says the the author was a concerned Christian minister who cared deeply for the spiritual condition of the congregation to whom he wrote. He longed for them to endure in following Jesus. This is what the hope of all those turned out to work. Long for those like them, like ourselves, to endure in following Jesus. So, to whom is the book written? Well, there are a few things we know about the recipients of the letter. We don't know exactly which Christian it is. There's no city directly named, but there's a bit of a mention at the end. But we must we know they're Jews. First one talks of our forefathers. So we suggest that they're called to Jews and congregation. As there's lots of references to the Old Testament and the scriptures in ways that suggest the readers were really familiar with that stuff. The style of the letters I mentioned before is, is rather like um, a sermon delivered in a synagogue. A style they would have been used to. It includes the sort of the structures of scripture, the interpretation, the application, and the exhortation that's common in that kind of um, sermon. They are Hellenistic views. The author wrote to them in sophisticated Greek, assuming that they would be able to read it. Um, he quoted from the Septuagint, the Greek version, the translation of the Old Testament. Um, it also seems they probably lived outside of what we call the Middle East, outside of you know, Judea and so on, and probably lived in Rome, as previous texts would suggest. The other thing about them is they're a bit like the Christians in the end. The writer says they've been Christians long enough for them to become teachers, but instead they still need to remind you of people reminding you of the basics. There's um, some really uh, admonition in that for us. And they probably had to endure some kind of suffering. I don't know exactly what this is, not known, but perhaps it was the expulsion of the Jews in 49 AD by Claudius. As we said before, the risk of Jews are falling away. So when? When was it written? Again, we can't be exactly sure, but it seems almost certain that sometime in the 60s. Okay, yes, we don't quite know when. Um, a couple of reasons for it. One, Timothy was still alive. It mentions at the end of the book that he'd just come out of prison. We don't even know about that anywhere else, but, but he's still around. No mention of Paul. Um, there's mention of some kind of persecution, but the persecution mentioned doesn't seem to be as bloody and horrifying as the persecution under Nero. Which is about 64 AD. But it could be they just need to lie low and not be as much impact upon them. But there's some sort of persecution that they can do. And, and I think the tension is that the, um, the temple sacrifices are mentioned in a way that suggests that's still happening. The temple in Jerusalem had not yet been destroyed, which happened in 70 AD. So it would suggest a date pre 70. So probably written in the 60s um, AD. Probably more important to hear that stuff is why. So, my purpose of the letter, summed up in, in Hebrews 13, verse 26, verse 22, says, I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation. The big deal here is exhortation. Uh, 
exhortation and a very strong exhortation uh, to endure, to speak of the struggling believers. And he wishes to endure to remain faithful to Jesus and not return to their former practices. So with that little bit in mind, just a bit of background, I'm going to move into, um, just have a look at that just little first sentence, the first half sentence that he says. Remember I said we're going to have a really narrow focus. Long ago, many times, many ways, God spoke directly to our fathers by the prophets. So think about the Bible as a whole, and we're going to narrow it down to something really, really specific. Lots and lots of stuff. We all know about the covenants, we all know about the epistles, but we're going to just narrow it down even further. So this is just today that God speaks to us in a whole array of ways, but one of those is speaks to us in our humanness. He speaks to us through that which is innate to us by virtue of our being humans, by virtue of our, our being Christians. So I'm not going to concentrate on the things the prophet said, the, the prophecies or the covenant. We'll get into some of that next week and we'll get to Jesus being better. But Jesus is speaking to us in the context of our humanness. What God has made us to be, the sort of creatures we are. Now, I'm going to give a bit of a warning here. If you are arachnophobic, now is the time to close your eyes. If you're like, say, Beth over here who loves spiders, now is the time to rejoice. But if you're arachnophobic, and this is a trigger warning, by the way, because I'm being too serious here. So if you are concerned, if there's a big issue for you, avert your gaze. This is a, um, a creature from my backyard. Now, that's, of course, life-size. Um, it's a very friendly fellow. Uh, if my wife had her way, it would be um, lying on the ground. But anyway, it's still there. And um, this is good. When it's decided to oppose it, with baby Paul, which is really handy because it normally faces the other way. So just for the photo opportunity, turn it around. So this is even better. It, it invited me to a selfie. As you can see, I stepped a little bit away. Not because I was afraid of spiders, but I get the yoga mat there. Now, if you think about stuff like that, here's a spider. Now, no matter how much I want to chat with it, or be its friend, I can't. I cannot have a conversation with a spider. There's nothing in its spiderness that allows me, in my humanness, to converse. It doesn't sit around contemplating my presence, except perhaps depending on what that thing is. It doesn't meditate upon it. Can't have conversation with a spider. But can have conversation with God. How unique is that? The difference between me and spider is far less than the difference between me and God. And God is immaterial. Yes, yes. He's unlimited. He's infinite, and yet somehow he can communicate with me. In fact, with all of us, with all human beings, despite the fact that we are material and body, limited, 
and goes so simple, trivial. Why is that possible? Possible for this moment. So this is found in verses 1.6. When God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. It says it's the way we are most like God, as is indicated in the, is indicated in the word, our. God is a relational being. When He's made us, He's made us to be relational beings. We are persons, just as God is person. So we, like God, are personal, relational. This is what God is, as much as it is who God is. But don't forget about who. What God is by His very nature. Um, G. Gordon Knox put it this way on one occasion. He says that God is, or the word is, exists as being in relationship. That's what it is. That's his, his very nature. He is essentially. Uh, we find it in the New Testament in 1 John. God is love. God is love. How can we connect with God? How can God communicate with us? Because He's made us personal and relational. So although we can never fully comprehend what the infinite nature of his being, we can communicate person to person. It's an amazing and strange thing. I don't know how many of us have sat there, I'm sure most of us have, but sat there at some point and gone, what? If you read this sort of scholarly literature and this sort of stuff, from a non-Christian perspective, you'd have them all going, we cannot speak of God. God is too distant. Now, if God really exists, we have no words for that. God is person. He's made us persons. We connect with him person to person. An important thing. So there's something in our humanness that God has given us, something that is innate that allows our communication to take place. God, as we know, is a Trinitarian. Relationship is fundamental to his being. We human beings are the same. We've been designed for relationship. First with God, and then of course with other persons. We're made male and female. We're made to relate. Humanity is male and female. Is that just male? Not just male and female. It's a lot. So God is able to speak to us and with us, and we're able to understand what God says to us and communicate with Him. For person to person communication is fundamental to personhood. Interpersonal relationships. Furthermore, we are capable of knowing God, despite this great, despite the fact that He is infinite, to the extent that He chooses to reveal Himself to us. In our limitations, we could not possibly understand the of God. But God chooses to reveal Himself to us in ways that we can. That's part of our personal relationships work. We know that. The degree of intimacy we have in our relationships is largely determined by what other persons choose to reveal of themselves to us. And although God is greater than we are in every way imaginable, He chooses to communicate um, what He wants us to know about Him and His will in ways that we can understand. And as we all know, He does this most generously. In Jesus, with God in the flesh, God in China, the Word became flesh and dwelt with among us. Now, even without, though, the familiarity 
even that intimate of the written word of God or the Bible, or even the incarnate word of God, Jesus, there's so much in us by virtue of our humanness that points us to God simply by virtue of that humanness, particularly in God's image. And despite our fallings, and for us as human beings, it is both wonder and a fright. Wonder and a fright of all of us, including kind people. Ecclesiastes uh, says this, He has made everything beautiful in its time. Notice this. Also, He has put eternity into man's heart. That's just there. That's innate. That's something God has given us. But, you know, we're not falling us yet so that we cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. But still, the answers. It's there. We come to ask for it. We desire, but we don't know the answers. It's interesting that if you read any philosopher in the Western world, and probably the Eastern world as well, you're familiar with so I won't uh, make comment, but they ask the same questions. I don't say, why? So, you know, who are we? What's our place in the world? What's wrong with the world? Is there a solution? Is there a God? What happens after? We ask the same questions. I don't know the answers. And the answer, of course, is we as Christians are convinced is Jesus is the answer. He completes all those things. He actually is the answer to all those deep questions. That quest for meaning, that desire to belong, all in Jesus. And God has given that to us as something innate that is just in us as human beings. So let's just give a couple of examples. You look to the skies. You see their vastness. We're in awe of them. I think all of us are blinded by the city lights and that's the only thing. But we're in awe. Because that, there must be a purpose in this. Surely it must mean something. There is incredible universe with even just a bit we can see. It can't just be there, surely. It, it can't just be meaningless, despite the claims of some, you know, say, existentialist philosophers. It, it, and it's interesting that that branch of philosophy, one of the things they end up doing is saying, humans can't live without meaning, so let's make one up. Let's just make our own. Knowing full well that the making of meaning by a person with no other reference point outside themselves is something you've to say. Again, the, the writer of Ecclesiastes hits that nail on the head when he says that life under the sun, as means life on earth, apart from God, is vanity. It's perfect. For why? For it ends in death. And anything we think we achieve in the course of our lives just Sound miserable if you get to the good thing. But just think for a moment. When you die, what will your life have meant? For how long will you be remembered? One generation? Two generations? Five. Example um, my mother's parents all died well before I was born. They before she was married. All I know of them is their names. No one else in the family knows anyone. Anyone who did? Sure. I have an old 
family Bible, as Paul did, so they might come in the, in that time of Christians, but they just had a Bible, and they'd written their, their names there in the front page. Okay? So, I can go to the department of first person marriages and get a record. So, guess where my old friend is? Apart from the marriage. Apart from somehow I'm related. That's it. Life is vanity. Maybe these kind of imprints, something that actually point to something beyond ourselves, and we can't quite put a finger on it. You might remember a couple of weeks back when we were doing this, we spoke in Psalm 19. It tells us that the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. So we looked at the heavens, and we went to the think, what is this design? Someone must have made this. And we might go, who? The heavens point us to a creator, but they don't by themselves tell us enough. See what um, Romans 1 tells us, they tell us. But what can be known about God is plain to them. Because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made or the ways. So the heavens point to the eternal power, the divine nature of God. I'll say nothing about redemption. If you were to ask some people who live in um, you know, earthquake prone areas or beneath a volcano, they'll say the earth is set up in a way that destroys. It's a terrible place. Therefore, we've got to appease the powers behind that so they don't kill us off. It's not enough in the Heavens themselves and the earth that we live on uh, to actually tell us about to give us meaning. It doesn't do that. But we do get the idea of power. We do get the idea of creation. So that which can be known about God from creation is that He's divine, powerful, in our sinfulness, our rebellion against the rule of God. Because of that, that's not obvious or we deny it. Creation points to the existence of God so that more is needed. We need God to interpret creation. We need God to, to speak even more plainly. We need His written word. Now, and that's why in Psalm 19, for example, it doesn't stop at just saying that the heavens and earth proclaim the glory of God. It goes on to say that the law of the Lord is perfect. It gives us written stuff, it tells us something of His will. It invites us to engage with him person to person as more giver. The Lord created perfect. So we need to know and follow what God requires of us. And we don't get that from heavens alone. God has to tell us stuff. So the Bible then answers what is probably the most fundamental philosophical question of all that is, why is there something rather than nothing? By suggesting that it's in creation. And in creation, that God is the author. God does this godless stuff. God acts in accordance with his nature. It's there for him. It's there for him. He calls him as his word. It's who he is. God does that with his consistent work and expresses his nature. He makes stuff. He exercises his power. He makes each. 
to displays the depth of His love for us, to give us a place to be. He gives us a purpose. He tells us that we are His viceroys who rule over the earth that we see that up as sin. And the very assured of Jesus. And yet, in many more ways, in which God, um, or we can get the sense that God is, we can just peace, if you like, to point uh, beyond ourselves to something greater. For instance, and I'll just give a few more examples of you today. We're all well aware that there's something wrong with the world. And if we hunger after a justice that we know must be there, somehow we all know that there are things that are always wrong and things that are always right, no matter what the culture or what the era, we can't escape the conviction that evil is real. We're convinced that wrongs must be righted. If not, we might as well accept there's no justice and the survival of fitness is the way things are. We just do as we please. Eat, sleep, you know, just mind and die. Right and wrong, if it's wrong, in that scenario, it becomes fiction, a delusion. So we see a lot of moralizing going on in you know, Facebook feeds and through spokespersons on the um, internet, they just see news and that kind of stuff. We can't do that much if we have no external reference point. Why should I believe them? In this sort of situation, all morality is reduced to power. The ones with the power get to do what they want, get to determine what they want to accept. It's actually power. But we still have, despite all that stuff, we still have this immense, innate sense that we live in a moral universe. That there somehow must be fairness. Why? Because we are created in the image of God who is good, kind, and love. We have a, a deep sense of need to belong. We don't belong in some of the home. We see, for example, in the connection of our, um, our First Nations people with the land. God speaks into his name. Jesus has prepared for us an eternal home. Only that we, we want to be known. We need to be known. We need to be loved. We need to be valued as who we are as human beings. John Paul says, Paul says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own. Just as the Father knows me, I know the Father. I lay down my life. This is just a kind of knowing that we hunger after, is it? Knowing that Jesus is Christ. 1 Corinthians 8 3, but if anyone loves God, he is known by God. This is an intimate, personal, deep, complete knowledge, a relationship. In addition, we need a purpose, we need a reason to hope. Some of you might have read um, some of the works of Victor Frankl, who's a Holocaust survivor, and spent a lot of his teenage years in concentration camps, including Auschwitz. And one of the things he discovered in that is that those who had cause to hope, that is, they genuinely believed there's something outside the camp that gave them reason to live. But those who had cause to hope, that those people survived greater privations than those without such hope. 
a little slip for me and desperately needed When um, Terry and I wrote a very illustrative book, I also wrote a just confession story of being confession, by the way, that the Terry can't be a symbol. That's the modern city of God. Just that, that confession. And it read through the first uh, of the autobiographical accounts of someone's conversion story. And he said, in that, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, for our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Isn't that kind of thing of Ecclesiastes is saying this morning? Let's take a little step further. Grace Pascal, chapter 27, says, What else does this craving and this helplessness proclaim but that there was once in man a true happiness, of which all that now remains is the empty tent and place? This implies the feeling vain that everything around him, seeking in things that are not there, um, not there, the help he cannot find in those that are. Now, none can help, since it's infinite at this can only be filled with an infinite and immutable object. In other words, as I said, God has graciously given us his emptiness, his innate desires, his unfulfilled hope, his unfulfilled longing, his desire for home, his need for meaning. He's given us that. Yeah, totally. We seek for a solution in all the wrong places. But God Himself has provided the answer. God Himself has provided the solution. God Himself has met that need. So we're imbued with these deep longings. They're given to us by God. And we're unsettled, we're unfilled, and without contentment until we enter into a relationship with the one who planted this restlessness, this unfulfilled desire in us. Let me just conclude with a couple of um, insightful observations that were made by C.S. Lewis. The first, he says, Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. If they be first hunger, well, first action is food. A duckling wants to swim, well, this action is another. Man feels sexual desire. Uh, well, this action is sex. If I find myself, in myself, a desire that has no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Isn't that what the God's implied about us? The sense that we're somehow something else? There's nothing more to it than this? And for many of us, that would be to God. Jesus goes on and says this again, you know, the longing or yearning is just an end in itself is one that's problematic. Since these things, the beauty, the memory of our past, are good images of what we really desire. But if they are mistaken for the food itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshippers. Where they are not the food itself, they are only the scent of a flower we have not heard. We just have a tune we have not heard. We use the country we have never yet visited. Resonate with us. Some of us here will have sought this to fulfill these uh, satisfactions in by other means. We've sought stages for wealth or education, whatever it might be. Now, in family, it's a whole array of things, but none of those things are the food of God. None of those things are the food of God, and we will be continuing to be dissatisfied and fulfilled. Then he says, Before I was a Christian, I was aware of these feelings, 
which belongs to I knew not yet. I wasn't aware at the time that God had placed them in my heart. I didn't realize he was using them as an instrument of his Holy Spirit to stir my desires and affections to do I, I don't know what it is that led people here to come to know Jesus. Clearly, it was the Holy Spirit working in us. But what it was in us, the man has looked for something beyond us, beyond ourselves, whether we're burdened with the guilt of sin, whether we just had a longing for something more, whether we wanted answers to unanswered questions, whatever that was. I know for me, I just want to know what's true. As a kid in my mid-teens, coming from an atheistic background, I thought, what's true? How do I find out? And somehow, as a 15, 16-year-old, I thought I could find out. Well, hopefully that's true, but um, I was arrogant enough to think that I could discover it. Thankfully, God worked faster and produced himself in the person of Jesus. For me, I just had no church background, none whatsoever. I just started reading the Bible. We had the line around home, the King James Version. Um, I just read and read. And I was so, I became so obsessed with the whole thing that I started underlining all the dumb bits. And then I had the good fortune to meet with a neighbor. A couple of very uneducated man. He could seriously he could burn you. And he introduced me to Jesus. He was beyond the belief and above all else. He had looked up to the See the source's conclusion? Once I came to faith, this sense of yearning took on a vibrant relevance that most beautiful little picture of Scripture. And as it is, that desire of death country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a son. Isn't that an incredible thing? That God is not ashamed of despite who we are and what we've done. For us to call him a God. For us to submit to him. He has prepared for us a home. A place where we can stay. Many times and in many ways, God spoke to us by the prophets. Next word, That's what you do the Father, we just really want to thank you that you have spoken to us through those infants, through those hints, through those, those longings that are unfulfilled. You have used those to speak to us and draw us that which is beyond ourselves. We thank you that you allowed us to discover that that is you. That is you. We praise you and thank you for your goodness, your grace, your kindness. We do all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for joining us for this presentation from North Pine Baptist Church. For more information and to connect with us, 
visit npbc.org.au.